Well, good morning again. It's uh, good to see you here today and uh, to see a few of you returning who have not uh, been able to be in our presence physically for some time, and now here we are, and uh, that's encouraging to uh, be able to see smiling faces, not just because masks have been removed for the most part, but just because some of you I haven't seen for a while. So it's good to be together. Uh, today we're going to be in Romans chapter 14, and it's our uh, goal today to finish this chapter. And uh, I would remind you again that um, if you haven't picked up your elements, that uh, now might be a good time to do so, or any time before the end of the service. Um, we're going to have the Lord's Supper at the end of our, <coughs> excuse me, at the end of our time today. And that's a blessed time we get to celebrate together. We are reading from Romans chapter 14. We're going to read verses 13 all the way through the end of the chapter. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone who makes another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Let's pray. Father, we worship you this morning. We call to mind who you are and that you are our creator and our sustainer and our redeemer. We praise you that you have given us your word before us. I pray that you would speak to us by your word today. That we would have our eyes opened, have our hearts opened by your Holy Spirit using your word. Father, we pray that you would be honored in this time, this morning. We pray that you would help us to set aside those things that have gone on this past week, whether it was 
busy or bad or wonderful or distracting, that we would, for a moment, be able to set that aside and be able to concentrate, to be able to be right here looking at your word and seeing what you have for us this morning. And then as we go away, having looked at your word, having heard from you, having celebrated the Lord's Supper, as we go back into our lives that can have many demands and pulls in different directions, I pray that what we have learned today would have impact in our lives, that we would see you and understand better what is this relationship with you that we have, even as we come from this time. So we ask that you would work even this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. I was once told of a group of Ukrainian Baptists who went to the country of Georgia to visit their Georgian Baptist brethren, and they were going to do some missionary work together. They were going to uh, do some evangelism and various other things. They were going to spend some time together and uh, fellowshipping and ministering together, enjoying one another's company, but they were from different countries, though they could speak the same language for the most part. And everything was going along very well at the beginning. They enjoyed being together. They were able to bless and encourage one another. And things were going wonderfully until they got to dinner time. And that's when uh, the tension began to rise. And here's, here's the rub. Baptists in Ukraine are usually teetotalers entirely. So any kind of consumption of alcohol is a no-no in the Ukrainian Baptist church for the most part with the exception, of course, of communion wine, which would be real wine. With the exception of that, there would be no consumption of alcohol allowed in any context. Well, these Ukrainian Baptists, that's the culture they're used to, that's the background that they're used to, were now visiting the country of Georgia. And Georgia is a very different place. Georgia is wine country, and Georgians love their wine. And that includes Georgian Baptists, who love their wine. So when it came to dinner time. The Ukrainian Baptists, of course, would never dream of having a glass of wine at dinner, and the Georgian Baptists would never dream of having dinner without a glass of wine. And so there were some tensions. And my friend never told me quite how that all resolved. He was more chuckling about the fact that uh, these two types of Baptists, and he was a third type of Baptist because he was from Armenia, and so he was chuckling at his neighbors. He never told me how it ended, but but uh, you have a situation where because of different backgrounds, because of what they've been taught, they have very different perspectives on a thing like consumption of alcohol. Very different takes. And for one, it was a, you know, a, a Christian would never think of consuming alcohol. And for the other, it wasn't even an issue for a Christian to have a glass of wine with dinner or whatever. And so they had taken very different positions on a topic that raised some eyebrows when it came to dinner time. So the question that we're approaching today as we get to this section in the book of Romans, how do we relate to other believers who have taken different stances on things like moderate consumption of alcohol or things like, uh, is it okay for a Christian to get a tattoo and other such things? We talked last time about the attitude that we ought to have toward one another when we're talking about these kinds of things, how we look at one another, what is that attitude to be? The passage this week has more to do with the actual decisions that we make on those matters of conscience, especially how our decisions on those matters of conscience affect the people around us. What impact do our decisions have on Christians 
who have decided differently in these same topics. How do those decisions affect them? And so that's really what our passage is about today. It's not so much the attitude, but the effect of our decisions on others. And the basic and really unsurprising message is that we are to walk in love. We are to walk in love toward one another. And that means, first of all, that we place no stumbling blocks. That we place no stumbling blocks. He says in verse 13, Therefore let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. There's a change in thinking here. From the the section before was a discussion of the attitude that I have. It was about, uh, do I stand in judgment over those who have made a different decision than me? Or do I sit in a place where I look down upon or despise those who have made a, a, a different decision than me? You see, the focus is here. I'm standing in the right position, and I'm looking down upon you, or I'm judging you, or I'm despising you, right? I'm the center. And what Paul is encouraging us to do is to change what is that center to where the consideration is not about me primarily. The consideration becomes about you, becomes about the brother, becomes about the impact of our decision upon that other person. There's a a change in center. Paul would have us consider the other person and the impact that our decisions in regards to matters of conscience, matters of freedom, the impact that those decisions will have on our brother or sister in Christ. He says, he says, let's never put a stumbling block before a brother. Let's never cause temptation to a brother who has made a different decision or maybe has a conscience that is bent differently in this regard. By my decisions, I don't want to lay a trap. I don't want to trip someone up, another Christian, in their behavior by something that perhaps that they struggle with. So when you consider whether it's okay for a Christian to get a tattoo or whether it's okay for a Christian to consume alcohol, you shouldn't only think about yourself and your own freedoms. That is an important consideration. But consider also how your fellow Christians will be affected by your decision. You may need to forego exercising your freedom in that area for the sake of your brother or sister in Christ. That was Paul's conclusion in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 13 in his own life. He said, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, he's talking about food sacrificed to idols and the freedom that we have to, to consume food that's sacrificed to idols and an idol isn't really anything and we've been redeemed in Christ. And so actually this food that, that might have been considered spoiled by some because it was sacrificed to idols, actually it can be consumed by a Christian for the glory of God. And so therefore for Paul... There was no issue with eating food that was sacrificed to idols. That was not a problem for him to consume that food. But he knew that there were people around him for whom it was a real problem. Maybe they were still struggling with the temptation to go to that same temple where that meat was sacrificed. Maybe they were were tempted by that. And even just knowing by looking at the label or whatever where this food came from, that they themselves might be drawn back into, tempted to go back into some form of idolatry. It was a temptation for them. And Paul says, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. 
Paul himself knew in his own mind, in his own conscience, this is not an issue. At, at, at the root, at the core of this thing, this is not a problem. It's not a problem for me, but it might be for someone else. And so when he's in the presence of that someone else, he's full willing to sacrifice his own freedom and say, no, for the sake of my brother, I'm not going to eat that because I don't want to put a stumbling block before my brother. Be careful not to put a stumbling block in the way of other Christians. But, he says, nothing is unclean in itself. He's not deciding not to eat the meat. He's not deciding to pass on the wine because there's something inherently wrong with that that act or that thing. There's not, it's not that the meat is spoiled. It's not that the, the wine is evil or, or consuming it inherently would be evil. No, he says nothing is unclean in itself. I know and am persuaded, verse 14, in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. Now, when he says nothing is unclean in itself, that doesn't mean absolutely nothing in the entirety of existence is unclean in itself. Adultery is unclean in itself. That is a sin in itself. Murder is unclean in itself. It is a sin in itself. He's not talking about everything in existence. He's, he's talking about these issues of conscience where the Bible hasn't specifically said, do not do this thing, or there's no direct implication that would tell us, stay away from this thing. This is an area where Christians can genuinely differ based upon their own conscience, based upon their own understanding of the gospel, or even their own maturity, or even their own background. He's talking about in that area, in those gray areas, like, for example, eating meat that's been sacrificed to idols, or eating meat that has potentially been sacrificed to idols. There's, there's nothing inherently unclean in that. That's what he means in these areas of conscience. His point is that in these decisions of conscience, like whether a Christian is free to eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols, uh, the deciding factor is not inherent in the thing or in the action itself, but it's inherent in the conscience of the Christian making the decision. That's where it's either clean or unclean in regard to these particular issues. Now, don't hear me saying that, therefore, we can just make whatever decision on whatever topic. Now, the Bible has very clearly told us what is right and wrong, has spelled out for us in great detail. If you read through the law, if you read through Jesus' teachings, if you read through Romans 12 through the end of the book, in great detail, he has told us things that are right and wrong. He's addressing the areas where the Bible doesn't give specific teaching that says, no, you must not do this, uh, or, or something like that. Or if there's no clear implication drawn from Scripture, like in the area of eating meat or the consumption of alcohol. But, he says thirdly, don't destroy what Christ purchased. Verse 15, for if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. He's, he's trying to get our focus off of me and my freedoms, what's right and okay for me only. Those are important considerations, but those are not the only considerations. He's trying to get our focus onto the other person to think about this other person and how our decisions impact them. And he says, don't destroy this person, the one for whom Christ died, who, by the way, doesn't belong to you. 
belongs to Christ. He belongs to someone else. Jesus gave his life for that person. And so you be careful and don't destroy what he has given his life for. When we lived in Chicago a number of years ago, our family was growing at the time and we had outgrown one vehicle, perfectly good vehicle, but we had outgrown it. It got to the point where the three car seats in the back, if we put them all in there, we couldn't close the doors. And so we were stuck, right? What do you, what do, you do? So we had friends next door who had, uh, they had a vehicle and he needed a commuter car and we needed a larger vehicle. And so we just did a temporary swap. It was a minivan and it was a great minivan and it was uh, of greater value, financial value than, than our little car that we were trading. And so we, we got this minivan and we were very careful because it was borrowed. It wasn't ours. I knew that if I got that thing in a wreck or if I dinged it in a parking lot or if I, if I caused some problems, it, this was his. And it's expensive. It's not mine. And I, I don't get to, you know, mistreat it or something like that. And so I was pretty concerned. And as we were driving around, extra cautious going through the parking lots. And I don't know if you've driven in big cities, but it's no fun. And it seems like there are, you know, dangers coming from all areas. And Chicago is no different, particularly in the snow. Well, so I was aware that this car didn't belong to me. And this car was of great value. The minivan was of great value. And and if I broke it, there was no way I could pay for it. And I, and I didn't want to do that anyway because it belonged to him and not to me. Well, the, the long story short there is that actually he ended up crashing my car. <laughs> and so he totaled our car and we said, great, we'll just do the swap permanently. And now we ended up with a great minivan and got it for the price of a smaller car. So it worked out rather well. But the, the point is... We don't want to damage what belongs to someone else, particularly if it's something of great value, right? It's not a big deal if it's a little thing. Well, you know, I could replace this pretty easily, but when it's something of great value, and that's kind of what Paul is saying, when you're dealing with the conscience, you're dealing with another person, another Christian, Jesus died for that person. You know, I didn't want to ding the minivan in a parking lot. My friend would have been okay with that, right? I, but Because it was of, of value, but Jesus gave his life for you. How much more should I care for you? How much more should I be cautious with you, not to damage you, not to destroy another brother, the one for whom Christ died? And so he gives us a caution here. And this caution is particularly for those who have more freedoms or more freedom in this particular area of discussion. If I'm one for whom eating uh, meat sacrificed to idols is not an issue, and I have the freedom to do that, he's cautioning me to be careful of you, to think about what the impact upon you would be of my eating meat sacrificed to idols. It's very easy for a person with the greater freedoms to, to almost act like a bully to people around them. Oh, you just need to grow up a little bit. When you, when you mature like me, then you'll be more aware or, or something like that. Or uh, if you were to come across, you know, me at the restaurant and there I am eating the meat sacrificed to idols, you know, and, and, and you ask me, what are you doing? You know, for me to say, there's nothing wrong with this. You know, don't judge me kind of thing. And have that attitude towards one another. And Paul is telling us uh, to behave quite differently. This is what he mentions, by the way, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, when he says, now concerning... Food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. 
this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. He's not saying that in general knowledge puffs us up. He's talking specifically about something like this, that for the person who knows and is aware and whose conscience is clear in regard to eating meat sacrificed to idols or something similar, it's easy for someone who says, yeah, well, I, I, I know the gospel and I understand these things and, and my conscience is clear and therefore you should too. It's very easy for me to go from I understand these things and am personally free to now somehow hanging that over your head so that I become puffed up by such knowledge. And I expect that if even if you're not going to behave that way, at least leave me alone when I behave that way. And don't bother me about it. Don't judge me. And when you see me in the restaurant eating the meat sacrificed to idols, just leave me alone. I have that freedom. It, that kind of knowledge can easily puff us up. And so the person who has these freedoms ends up causing problems for himself and for the other brother whose conscience is not quite so free. And so, for those who have greater freedoms, the, uh, this argument will probably not carry the day when you say, this isn't a big deal. Just get over it. That's not our attitude toward one another. That's not how we exercise our freedoms before our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so in exercising your freedoms in Christ, don't destroy the one for whom Christ died. You have to be careful. You have to be cautious. You have to be aware of the impact of your own decisions on your brother in Christ. And this comes down to what he talks about in the next few verses about understanding the kingdom. Understanding what the kingdom is really about. Don't give a good thing a bad name. Verse 16, so do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. Now, for the longest time when I read that verse, I thought that meant, okay, if you were the person who had the greater freedom and eating the meat sacrificed to idols was not a problem for you, I thought this was an instruction to you that when someone says, oh, you, you know, it's bad to eat meat sacrificed to idols, that you should correct that that you should not allow that to be spoken evil of because you know it's not a big deal. And so you need to go and correct that person or you need to stand your ground or something. And that is not at all what he's talking about. That's not at all what he's talking about. How, how might we let something that we regard as good be spoken of an evil uh, as evil in this context? He means by the way you exercise your freedoms. So if you're that person who can eat the meat sacrificed to idols, but you're always beating people over the head with it, what are they going to think of you? What are they going to think of that freedom? They're going to say, see, that guy thinks it's okay to eat meat sacrificed to idols, and look at his attitude. You know, it really just goes to show you that when people eat meat sacrificed to idols, it does that to their attitude. So all the more, we shouldn't eat it. We should stay even further away from it. We should probably just be full-on vegetarians and never eat meat because it might have been sacrificed to idols. In the way you exercise your freedoms, don't don't... Don't let other people speak evil of it because of your attitude, because of your own behavior. You, you, have, you have the ability to exercise your freedom with gentleness, with self-control, with sensitivity to other people, so that it is not spoken evil of. In my own, in my own uh, upbringing, I... Uh, there was one person in particular who was a great example to me, someone that I still uh, admire in a lot of ways, was a great example to me 
of moderate consumption of alcohol. This person wasn't a Christian, but he would he would buy a six-pack of beer at the beginning of the summer, and he would drink one that first day, the day he bought it. And then he'd forget about it until about July, and then he'd drink the second one, and then it would be in there until October. Like, he, he just didn't care, right? And for me, that was a great example of someone who's in no way controlled, but in someone, as someone who just enjoys it in great moderation. And that was a great example to me. And so here was a person not allowing what he thought good of to be spoken of as evil because of the way he exercised his own freedoms. What is the essence of the kingdom? Verse 17, he says, The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. What is the essence of the kingdom? Well, it's not of eating and drinking. That's not, that's not the litmus test of whether someone's in the kingdom. It's a very common question that we get, uh, that you probably get when you talk to new believers. Uh, newer believers, as they're growing in their faith and they're trying to be obedient to God, they're trying to understand how, how all this thing works and, and it's a whole new world, they will, they will eventually ask the question and probably multiple times, so tell me, is it a sin to do this or that? Right? They're just asking, they're quizzing, is it a sin to do this or that? And the answer that I give them can't be satisfying. <laughs> can't be satisfying at all because usually the answer is, well, maybe. It depends on your attitude, your reasons for doing it. That's a hard thing for a new believer to, to learn, that actually there, there could be times when nearly anything could be a sin because of the way you treat it, because of the reasons you're doing it, or maybe the time you're doing it. Is it, a, it uh, an example off the top of my head, I'll probably get myself in trouble. Is it a sin to read your Bible? Is it a sin to read your Bible while you're driving? Okay, <laughs> yeah, that's an absurd example, and probably you, you know you weren't reading Romans 14 as you were driving down Williams on the way to church this morning. But but our attitude is so much at play in whether a thing, doing a thing, is a sin. Our motivation for why we do it, and this is why it's a difficult thing for new Christians to think about obedience and what obedience looks like, because when you're when you're on the outside of the faith. You have this notion that, well, Christians do these things, and they avoid these things. And so somehow that's involved in what it means to be a Christian. It means I do these things, and I don't do these things. You see, I've redefined what the kingdom is, what is the essence of the kingdom. And for the one who's outside the faith, that makes sense, right? Because they're not understanding what's really going on, the, the deep uh, the, the deep truths and heart issues and eternal destinies that are at stake. Spiritual life and death, things that you can't see with your eyeballs. Those are the things that are going on. And so when you're outside the faith and you're looking at it, you think, well, Christians do these things, or at least they say they do these things. And they don't do these things, or at least they say they don't do these things. You see, in their mindset, the kingdom of God is about eating and drinking. Do you or do you not do certain things? That's the litmus test. And Paul is saying that is not the litmus test. The kingdom of God is not about eating and drinking. It's not about whether you do or don't consume a particular kind of meat or alcohol in moderation or any of a number of other things. 
the kingdom of God is about righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. It's entirely different. The kingdom of God is about something that goes on deep within, something that you can't see with your eyeballs. It's about righteousness. And righteousness doesn't just show itself in behavior. Righteousness is actually, all through the book of Romans, something he's been talking about numerous times, it is God's standard of perfection. Perfect righteousness. That's what he requires in order to be in his presence. And you and I don't do that. We don't meet that standard, and so we lack. We, we are short. We are unrighteous in our own character. We're unrighteous in our own actions. And so God sent Jesus, who was righteous in his character and in all of his actions, in his motives, in his intentions, his attitudes, righteous, and fulfilled the law, and then died on that cross in the place of you and me who are unrighteous, who have not met God's standard, who deserve God's punishment instead. So God was pleased to take the punishment that you and I deserve and place that on Christ himself and execute that punishment in him. He was put to death and he was raised on the third day as an indication that that God was pleased with that transaction. God was pleased with his sacrifice. And by faith in Christ, that righteousness that he has done in his life is credited to us, to our account, as we talked about in Sunday school today. And my unrighteousness, my sin and the guilt, the the, the punishment that I deserve, that's all placed on Christ. Punished in him so that we receive forgiveness of our sins and we receive an account that is full of righteousness. The kingdom of God is about this righteousness. And by the way, it's not done there. Because God continues to work in his children in such a way that he forms us and shapes us and molds us. It's called sanctification. It's a work that he does in us to form us to be like his son. So that that righteousness even begins to show itself in our lives by the working of the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God is not about eating and drinking, but it's about righteousness. It's about peace. Where there was enmity between us and God, in Christ there is now peace between us and God. And where there was enmity between man and man, between one people and another people, between one person and another person, separation, enmity, like we saw in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned, the first thing they did was was have disunity amongst themselves. They were separate from one another and willing to throw one another under the bus before God. And in the place of that disunity, in the place of that division, Christ brings peace. Peace between his children and peace with himself. The kingdom of God is not about eating and drinking. It's about righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. No longer the sorrow that we deserve, expecting God's enmity, expecting judgment for our wrong, expecting the penalty for the things that we've really done. No longer being alone. No longer anticipating, uh, fearing, dreading, being unwilling to be in God's presence. Now, God's presence is joy joy in the Holy Spirit, so that we look forward to life, even though life has a lot of difficulties, even though life has pain, life has a lot of uncertainty, and life ends in death, at least this life, yet we have joy because we know that even when when we experience that end of death, it's actually just the beginning of a new, a new expression of eternal life that, by the way, is eternal. 
kingdom of God is not about what we do, what we don't do. The kingdom of God is about righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And whoever serves Christ this way is acceptable to God and He is approved by men. Not, not a keeping of lists, not an avoiding of things, but knowing Christ. Knowing God, our Father, our Maker, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And so he says, pursue peace and edification. So then, verse 19, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. No longer being distracted, no longer being focused on whether I have the freedom to do this thing or not. That's an important discussion. That's an important thought. But it's not the end of the discussion because the decision that I make on these things will have an impact upon you. And I ought to be seeking your growth, your edification, pursuing peace and edification so that our focus is there, not just on ourselves. And so in summary, in these last few verses are really a summary of what has come before. He says, exercise freedoms in love. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. But he says, verse 22, the faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. In other words, protect your faith. Protect your faith. This doesn't mean when he says keep it between yourself and God, he's not saying to keep it, you know, private and quiet. Uh, you know, don't tell anyone else about it. Don't let anyone else in on that or, or anything like that. That's, that's not what he's talking about. It seems to be more of a restatement of what he said in verse 5, that, that we should each be fully convinced in our own minds. You need to know what you believe on that topic. Don't just go along with the flow. Don't just do what your buddies are doing. Don't just do what someone else that you admire does. You need to look at your own life and you need to think about the gospel in regard to you and think about this issue of meat sacrifice to idols or can a Christian have a tattoo or is it okay for a Christian to consume alcohol in moderation or any of a number of other issues. You need to think about yourself and what does my conscience say about this? What does my understanding of the gospel teach me about this thing? You need to protect your faith, meaning you need to be fully convinced and you need to act accordingly. Act accordingly. I remember a friend of mine, and we were on a road trip going across country, and we were crazy college students, so we were doing it nonstop. And it's like 33 hours or 36 hours or something from Chicago. And we were just driving straight through. We were all tired. We'd driven numerous hours. And, and it became so-and-so's time to drive. Well, he said, I can't. My driver's license has expired. And I was like, oh, normally that wouldn't be a big deal. Like, good, you should, you know, you should obey that. You should, you know, don't drive when your license has expired, et cetera. And he said, I can't. But at the time, you know, it was like 2 a.m. I had driven a whole long time. And I was ready for him to, you know, like, drive already because I want to sleep. And he said no. And so I was pretty angry at him. But... And by the way, that's not, a, that's not a gray area. That's not an issue that you should have your license renewed. <laughs> Richard's here today, and so I, I might hear about this later. <clears throat> but you've got to have that kind of boldness. That even though everybody else is going along and they're going down to, you know, eat the meat sacrificed to idols because it's not a big deal. And by the way, it's a discount. Well, if your conscience says don't do it, don't do it. Even if you look a little silly in front of your, of your buddies. 
Even if they're going to look at you and say, I don't care, you know, we're going. No, you need to you need to be obedient. You need to follow your conscience. And so he says, protect your faith. And then again, he says in, uh, in verse 22, careful what you approve. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. This is why I said last week that the answer to these questions is not, hey, just do what you want. Just do what you want. The answer is, what is obedience in this area? What does my conscience say on this topic? Not just what I want to do, because by the way, your flesh wants to do all kinds of things. So you're not just unleashing your flesh because this area doesn't have something spelled out particularly in Scripture. You need to be careful what you approve. As he says in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whatever you, uh, wh- whatever you do, whether you eat or you drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. It's not just whatever you want. You need to think through it in regard to the gospel, in regard to Scripture, and see what Scripture teaches on that topic. And moving along, because we kind of need to. Verse 23, believe and obey. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. But whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Just as our conscience is shaped by what we believe, our obedience flows from our faith. I've talked about conscience several times. I've mentioned that several times in in our message today. Conscience is not the voice of God. Conscience is not the voice of God. Conscience is a function of the way we are made in our in our minds that is judging a particular action in light of what we believe to be the greatest good, what we believe to be right and true. So it's a function, conscience is a function that judges an action, whether it's a contemplated action, one you're thinking of doing, or one you've already done. Your conscience judges that action based upon what you believe to be good, what you believe to be right. So that's a function of your mind. It's a function of your heart. It's not the voice of God. And, by the way, if you think about that, it's examining this action in light of a standard. What if your standard is wrong? What if your standard is unbiblical? And there are a lot of times, many times, and even for mature Christians, there are areas of our lives where the standard we have that our conscience is holding us to is actually unbiblical. It's an unbiblical standard. That's why we read and study our Bibles, one of the many reasons, is so that what we know is right and true can come into conformity with what Scripture says. There are many people whose consciences aren't bothered at all by all manner of things that we as Christians know are wrong. And a new Christian coming into the faith has the same issue. Their conscience tells them this thing is right or wrong based upon a standard that is a faulty standard. Okay? It can be a faulty standard. And so what that means is, by the way, that we can educate our conscience. We can inform our conscience. Meaning, we can study what is right and true according to God's Word. Study it, know it, believe it, and you'll see your conscience begin to come into line and judge your actions based upon a better standard. And so this is one of the reasons that we preach Scripture and and try to exegete and show forth what is here in the text so that we can have our consciences 
readjusted according to what is good and right and true according to God's word. Maybe I grew up in a culture. For example, we were visiting Russia, and in Russia, they are big on saving face in certain contexts. That's not what they call it, but but uh, if you, uh, under certain circumstances, long story short, they're willing to lie to you to save face, not to embarrass their family or themselves. They'll lie to you about it. And, yeah, I see looks on people's faces. They're like, well, I mean, I've done that, but I knew it was sin when I did it. <laughs> I don't like to do that. And, and certainly it's not culturally acceptable for us to do that, to lie to people. But in that context, in, in, in that culture, certain aspects of that culture, yes, that's what you do. You were raised to do that because you didn't want to embarrass yourself, you didn't want to embarrass your family, or you didn't want to embarrass the other person. And so you're willing to tell a little white lie to kind of get around that. Well, as American Christians raised in a different context, and we show up and we're learning about culture, and they tell you, well, you know, in this circumstance, they told you this, but actually that was not true. It was actually this thing that was true. And we're all thinking, well, I know what that's called. That's called lying. <laughs> but in their culture, it's what they did. Okay? It's because their standard, that their conscience was holding them to on these actions, their standard was different. Standard was warped. The standard was unbiblical. And you and I have things like that also, where our conscience needs to be informed. And so, just as our conscience is shaped by what we believed, our obedience, our actions in life, flows out of what we believe to be true. Our life, our actions, our practice comes from, flows out of what we believe to be true. That's why the emphasis in our preaching is on what is true. What is the gospel? Who is God really? Who is Christ really? And who are you really as a human and as a Christian? Because what we believe reveals itself in our behavior. That's different than going back to the mentality that says Christianity is about doing these things and not doing these things. You can make people that look like Christians by preaching those things. This is what we do. This is what we don't do. And we review that next week, and we review that next week, and we review that next week. That doesn't make Christians. It makes people who look like Christians or try to look like Christians. And by the way, it's an abomination of the gospel if I say that is the essence of the kingdom. If I say that is the gospel, that is a false gospel. The gospel is what we talked about earlier and what we get to celebrate as we celebrate the Lord's Supper That God, our creator, who is holy, who is eternal, created us as his creation. We owe him all obedience. We owe him all allegiance. And yet instead, we've turned into rebellion. Starting with Adam and Eve and, and coming right through to us. Sin, which keeps us at, at a distance from God, puts a barrier between us and him. It's, it's actually spiritual death. And that's a problem because we deserve God's wrath. We deserve his judgment. We deserve to be eternally separated from him. A natural man wants to be separated from God. God, leave me alone. And what happens in eternity for someone who is not in Christ is that God leaves him alone. At least in all of his blessings and all of his goodness. And he visits them only with wrath. But God sent his son Jesus to stand in our place. To bear that wrath for all of those who would believe in him. And by what he has done, by the, the, what he has accomplished in his life and on the cross, you and I 
are made God's children. You and I are made right with God and given peace. We have life because of what Christ has done. And that shows itself, that reveals itself in a life that God changes so that we begin to do things that look like this and not do things that look like this. But it is a salvation that results in and produces those things. It's not resulting from those things or being produced by those things. He says our obedience comes from our faith. There was a many stories told to us when we lived overseas of churches in Eastern Europe that have reminders, literally written on the wall, reminders of what they believe, written literally on the wall inside the church, probably be up here, something like that, of what they believe. Those things that were written, they were written there to keep on the forefront of their congregation's minds certain non-negotiable foundational beliefs. And what, what was written on the wall was a list of sins that if you commit those sins, you're kicked out of the church. That was what was written on the wall. Well, here at, at Parkside, we, we have a reminder also. It's a reminder to keep in the forefront of our minds certain non-negotiable and foundational beliefs. And what we have is the Lord's Supper. We have the Lord's Supper given to us by Jesus himself. And what it reminds us is that the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And that righteousness and joy and peace is ours because of the, the perfect, redemptive actions of Jesus Christ, the God-man, on your behalf. And that's where we find Christ. That's where we find Christianity. That's where we find righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And so if you would take out the elements that you have there. We're going to celebrate that Lord's Supper, that communion that Jesus gave to us. And what we're celebrating here is what Christ has accomplished for us. And as such, it is something that's to be celebrated by Christians. Those who have put their faith in Christ. It's to be celebrated by those who have realized their own need before God realized their own sin, their own depravity, the fact that they can't measure up to God's standard. Though they are God's creations, yet in themselves they can't do it. But Christ has done it. Christ has done it. And so what we celebrate here is how it is that we can have righteousness and how it is that we can have peace and how it is that we can have joy in the Holy Spirit. And so if you're not a Christian... If you don't know Christ, just, just pass on this time and listen. Listen to what we've said. Think about that gospel. Think about how it is that we become Christians, how it is that we can have peace with God in Christ. And let the elements pass for now. For Christians, as we think about this, we think about what Christ has done, we are reminded that Jesus died 
to pay the penalty for sins. And, and you've committed sins this week. And so have I. He died to pay the penalty for those sins as well. And so I'm going to take just a moment of silence and then I'm going to read a verse to us. And during that moment of silence, just, just reflect briefly on your week and you'll realize, I still need Christ. I still have sin in my life that needs to be forgiven. And confess that sin and you will find forgiveness in Christ. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And celebrate and rejoice in that peace with God that you have because of Christ. Give thanks for the fact that He really did give His own body. He really did give His own blood to redeem you and to redeem me. So let's take a moment and just ponder those things. The Apostle Paul says, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 23, he says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Let's pray. Father, we hold in our hands uh, bread which represents the body of Christ that Jesus himself gave for us. Sacrificing his own life, giving himself up to be that sacrifice, that substitute, the propitiation in our place to bear the wrath of God in his own body on the tree. We rejoice in the fact that we get to be partakers of this bread. We get to eat this bread, which is a symbol of the fact that we have partaken of Christ and we do so again. That he's the sacrifice for us. We're identified with him. We have righteousness in him. We have the penalty paid in him. Father, we rejoice that we get to do this, that we get to be called your children because Jesus gave his own body. Be honored in this time and minister to us even through this supper. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Next, we come to the cup. Paul continues. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Let's pray. Father, we hold in our hands the cup 
representing the blood of Christ, by which we have forgiveness of sins, by which he instituted the new covenant so that we are made right with you because of what he has done. That we have new life given to us by faith alone. Father, we confess our own sin and our great need for this blood that Jesus shed. And we partake now remembering and celebrating and rejoicing in what he has done for us. Reconciling us to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus said, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this redemption that's ours in Christ. Thank you that the kingdom of God is not about eating and drinking. It's not about a list of do's and don'ts. There are ethics. There are Christian ethics. Christianity is not an ethic. It is salvation in Christ. And we celebrate that today. And Father, I pray that you would help us as we go out and we think about our own freedoms. We think about what it means that There are some things in the Christian life that are not clearly right and wrong, that are areas of conscience. I pray that we would consider you, consider the gospel, consider our neighbor when we make decisions in those regards. We want to honor you. We want to care for our neighbor. And we want to celebrate this freedom that you've given us in Christ. Freedom sometimes to exercise these freedoms and freedom sometimes to abstain. Father, thank you that you have placed your Holy Spirit within us who gives us joy as this passage talked about today and empowers us in our Christian life to keep our eyes fixed on you, to give us love for one another, to empower our obedience to you. We pray that you would work in us She would be sanctifying us even this week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.